Won't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we give you great praise and thanks for who you are and for what you have done in our lives. And as we're going to see today, Lord, the greatest gift that you've given us is the gift of yourself. And yet, Lord, how you have given us yourself is going to make all the difference. And so, God, I pray that today we would have ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed to us. And that, Lord, we would not be afraid to respond to who you are and to what you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are capping off the first of, of two parts to this series today that we have for the last few weeks been looking in detail at the whole idea of who we are in our identity, who we really are. Uh, from image bearers of God to fallen people who are in trouble to people who work like crazy to solve our most vexing problems, we have been kind of flying at 40,000 feet over the last few weeks, a couple months here at our church, and asking ourselves, what does God and his book, specifically the book of Romans and the New Testament, tell us about who we are? And as I challenged you in the first week of this series, I hope you have been able to match up what the Bible says about who you really are with your own experience and with reality as you perceive it. That's really the test of this whole series. It is for each of you, and then over at our Cactus Campus and in our venue, which are live with us now, that you all, we all would match up what the Bible says is true with our own experience and ask ourselves, is it true for us? Am I experiencing these stu this stuff? So as the Bible says, for instance, that we are image bearers, made in the image of God, creative, gifted, valued by Him, does that fit your worldview? Is that what you experience? Is that how you see reality? That human beings made just a little lower than the angels, but the pinnacle of God's creation here on earth, where would you say we came from? Where would you say that we got these amazing abilities and gifts to reflect and create, unlike anything other in the animal kingdom? God, Bible says it's from God. We're image bearers. Or consider what we looked at in this series, this whole idea of being fallen. The fact that none of us are perfect. That somehow, somewhere, mistakes and even sin, evil and even ugliness has entered into the human race. Again, any worldview worth its weight in gold needs to be able to answer the question, where did this ugly stuff come from? How do we explain evil, human suffering, even the stuff that resides in our hearts? And the Bible has an answer to that. It says we are fallen, that a time in history past, God did not make the world this way. He made it good. He made us as image bearers, but we have fallen. And then the Bible says even further, we're separated from him because God is angry and frustrated with our fallenness. And as we saw last week, we work like crazy to try to remedy all this. Many times, much of the time, to no avail. Uh, folks, this has been an amazing look at the book of Romans and both its logic as well as its livability when it outlines for us who we really are. And who are we really? We're finding this out, both good and bad. And I don't know about you, but for me, it makes sense and it fits reality as I know it. And yet, even more powerful and life-altering than all of this is the fact that the Bible doesn't stop here. Not at all. It doesn't stop in just telling us who we really are, but it even goes on to tell us who we can become as we now turn the corner with God. I mean, that's really what the gospel, the good news, is all about. 
the fact that God says, I'm not just going to tell you who you are in all of its created as well as fallen, and all your createdness and fallenness. I'm also going to tell you who you can become as you start to understand what life in Jesus is all about. And that's what we're going to explore here in the rest of our time this morning. What the Bible, specifically the book of Romans, calls the new way. The new way. So if you brought a Bible with you right now, Venue and Cactus, if you guys brought Bibles, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 7, verse 6. We're going to go back to chapter 1 and then chapter 3 here in just a few minutes. But I want you to look at what a Romans 7, verse 6 says about this whole idea of the new way. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's either on the back of your outline or look up here on the screen. It says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, here it is, in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. It's very simple, really. The, the new way versus the old way. That's what I want us to focus on today. Last week, we talked a little bit about this old way, about trying to work hard in our own strength to live by the written code, whether in our hearts or in the Old Testament law. And we saw how fruitless and futile it is in getting us closer to God. And today, I want us to explore very positively this idea of the new way. And so as we wrap up the first part of this series today, I want to introduce you to three things that are core to this new way. Three things that will help us understand what it is, and even more importantly, what our lives can be if we dare apply it. So here's the first thing, and that is that this new way provides the only solution to our biggest problem. It's true. This new way provides the only solution to our biggest problem. So check this out. Like all good books that have ever been written in the history of the world, the book of Romans, the book that we've been studying for the last six weeks, actually has a thesis. It has a main point. And some of you who have studied the Bible before also realize that we have yet to read the thesis or the main point of the book of Romans. We've been kind of scuttlebutting all in and around it, which has been good to do. But today, by design, I want us to read its thesis. So turn to the first chapter of Romans, look at verses 16 to 17, and hear what it, here's what it says, the main point of the whole book. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, though at first glance, it might not seem so, this thesis, which is basically a variation of the new way in chapter 7, actually tells us very clearly here the solution to the dilemma that sin has created in our lives. And so remember, the backdrop here is chapters 2 and 3, in which it will go on to spell out, as Jim did earlier in his poetic utterances, that the whole idea, it will spell out the whole idea of, of the problem of our lives being sin that separates us from God. And let me just pause there really quickly. The Bible makes it very clear, and this is what we've looked at over the last few weeks, that the biggest problem for humankind is our sin. The biggest problem that you and I have Monday through Saturday, and it also includes Sunday, but we tend to be more holy on Sunday, the biggest problem we have is a sin problem that separates us from God. It's the fact that we are distant from God, from the fall, from birth, and that's our biggest problem. And when you think about it, it's only church that's telling you that, right? 
I mean, CNN never tells you that your biggest problem is a sin problem with God. Primetime television never tells you that your biggest problem is a sin problem with God. I mean, radio, they never tell you that. ASU education, they never tell you that. I mean, you would talk to the average person today, and they would say that their biggest problem is a bad economy, or that their biggest problem is a failed marriage, or that their biggest problem is a dead-end job, or that their biggest problem is debt, or that their biggest problem is depression or anxiety or grief. And I'm not suggesting that any of those things are not big problems. They are, and you and I deal with them all the time. But don't be fooled, church. Your biggest problem are not those things. Your biggest problem, what Larry Crabb calls your core terror, is the fact that from birth you've been born separated from Almighty God due to the fall of humankind that resides in you as well. And this is the problem the Bible addresses. And no amount of good works, no amount of self-help, no amount of therapy, no amount of you trying to be a good person is going to solve this problem. That's what Romans makes very clear. You can't be righteous enough to make up for the separation that we experience with God. It's a big dilemma. It's our biggest problem. So with that backdrop, notice with me a couple of key things then, going back to our thesis that Romans makes very clear here in verses 16 and 17. First, it tells us that in this new way, there is salvation. There is salvation. Now, you know what the problem is that word salvation? You and I as Christians, because we use what we call Christianese to communicate to each other, have used that word salvation like everybody and their brother should understand what it means, right? Like, you know, I'm saved and I have salvation and deliverance and all. And, and yet, I'm not sure that even many church people could give you a really good definition of just what the word salvation means in the Bible. So let me give it for you here. Salvation means deliverance from something. It means being rescued from something. It means that a dilemma or problem is solved to the point of satisfaction. And so in light of the dilemma that we're looking at here of our sin separating us from God and creating a real and felt barrier, it's telling us that salvation is available, a deliverance, a solution is being offered by God. That's all the word salvation means. And so what is that solution? Here's the second thing I want you to notice about this thesis here in Romans, and that is that this salvation is found in the righteousness of God. Whoa. It is found in the righteousness of God. Now, this is very interesting, because you and I should be asking right now, what does that mean, and how does that work? I want you to listen closely, because in the last 2,000 years of church history, there's actually been some debate, some confusion over what it means here in Romans when it says that salvation is found in the righteousness of God. And for the last 2,000 years, there have basically been two competing understandings of what the righteousness of God means here when it comes to solving our biggest problem. And the first option is this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that it could mean God making us right. That when it says the righteousness of God, it's referring to a righteousness that you and I attain with God's help in that he makes us righteous enough in order to be considered saved. So it works like this. God enters your life through faith. He works in and through you over time along with your own efforts. And hopefully as he works in you and you respond, you become a better person. 
to the point that you literally become and actually become righteous enough to bridge the gap that's between you and God. It's God making us right, working in us via divine activity, divine cooperation, to a point that we become so righteous that the people around us go, whoa, he or she is really righteous. Man, they've just attained it. They got to be in good with God. Heaven has to be theirs. And if you've been listening close over the last 30 seconds, you realize that this interpretation of the righteousness of God here in verse 17 is actually a subtle form of what we call works righteousness, in which the righteousness of God, this interpretation, here means that we cooperate with God in becoming actually more righteous to strike a blow against our biggest problem. Unless some of you think that this isn't alive and well today, because if it's alive and well for 2,000 years in the history of the church, there are entire denominations within Christianity that teach this approach to salvation. That's why there's an entire, entire denominations within Christianity that teach you need to be baptized at birth to be ushered into the church. You need to then make sure you go to church every single Sunday. You need to confess your sins to a holy man. You need to make sure you have lots of good works. They even make distinctions between certain kinds of sin. Why do churches do this? Well, they do it because they believe that the righteousness of God that secures salvation is a righteousness that you must attain in order to consider yourself saved and having solved your big sin problem. And the only problem with this option is that though it does sound good, obviously, to many people, I don't feel that it collates at all with the rest of the book of Romans, especially the next two chapters, and it doesn't collate, I don't think, with our experience. This is crucial to see, folks. The next two to three chapters of Romans that we've been studying over the last four weeks will go on to say, after it sets up this thesis about the righteousness of God, that we all fall short. And I mean way short of God's glory, and hence we are stuck in our sin. It's going, to, it's going to go on to say that we all feel separated from God. We all are in big trouble with him. And, and kind of like the one-two punch, it's going to say that no amount of human effort, get this, even human effort aided by divine decree and presence, as was in the Old Testament law, no amount of human effort, even aided by God's presence, can help you overcome your sin problem. It's too bad. It's too serious. You can never measure up to God's standard. That's what the book of Romans will go on to make very, very clear. That's the big object lesson from the Old Testament with the Old Testament law. And so given what chapters 2 through 4 will go on to say, I find it hard to believe then that the righteousness of God here in verse 1 is referring to an actual righteousness, even with God's help, that you and I attain to somehow secure this salvation. It just wouldn't make sense. And it also seems to put incredible pressure on you and me to get with the program and to get things right the same pressure the Bible says was existing in the Old Testament law that, that eventually crushed us. And so there's a second option that the last 2,000 years of theological wrestling has put forth and that many wise people have embraced. And this is a, a subtle but powerful difference, and that is that the righteousness of God is God, not God making us righteous. It's God declaring us righteous. 
Now, now tune into this. A very, very, very big difference. It's not God actually making us righteous enough because that's not going to happen this side of heaven. But it's God declaring us righteous. In other words, knowing that we can never get back to our pre-fall perfect state, read Genesis 1 and 2, God, in his amazing love and grace, has provided a new way in which our status before him can change. So instead of our status being one of separation and judgment, it now becomes a status of having measured up even though in practice we still fall short. It's God calling something that is not as if it is. Talk about creativity. It's his declaring his children righteous even though on a practical level we still struggle. The pathway is opened up here in this new way to a relationship with God, not because we have actually become righteous enough to have a relationship with him. Bible says you can't do that. It's opened up because God gives us his righteousness. We'll see how this works here in a second. The righteousness of God, and in giving us a declared level of righteousness, he says, now. You can come in, now you can come home. This is what theologians would go on about 500 years ago during a time called the Reformation to call positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. Simply the reality that though on a practical level we struggle with sin and its effects as far as God sees our position and our status before him, we can now be found righteous and holy, meeting all the requirements of the law that we have failed to keep. So what Romans 1 is talking about here in the righteousness of God being the key to our salvation means that our status has changed even though our practice has not. And don't get me wrong, God is not saying that he doesn't want our practice to change. He's simply saying that before salvation, when it comes to you trying to do enough good works to attain salvation, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't even do it with a little bit of divine help. In fact, I like how one author says it. He says that this idea of God making us right is all about divine activity, God actively joining us with divine activity. But this idea of God declaring us right is all about divine achievement. So the idea that God has achieved something for us In declaring us righteous, God infusing a righteousness in us positionally that we could never attain through our best good works. And, and, you know, I've been at this now for 31 years. I'll talk about my testimony here in a few minutes. But I, I, I know that this is somewhat confusing to some people. But when you start talking about positional righteousness and God declaring us right versus the idea of us ever becoming righteous enough. And some people go, I just don't get it. Maybe this will help because this is something we all have experienced in our lives, I think. This is really no different than how many of us approach parenting with our kids. It's really no different than how many of us have had an experience within a family. We do what God is doing here all the time. Let me explain. If you and I were having a cup of coffee today and I said to you, are your kids 100% your kids? Meaning, do you embrace them? Do you love them? Are they 100% a part of your family? The average parent today would say, Yes, of course. 
I, I, I mean, your kids are your kids. Even if they're adopted, they're your kids. Even if you have a mixed family, they're your kids. And they're 100% your kids. We, we, we pledge unconditional love to them. It's not a 50-50 action. They're 100% a part of our family. And yet, think about it. In practice, sometimes our kids act like it, and sometimes they don't. That was a really good spot for an amen, so let's take another run at that. <laughs> Even though they're 100% a part of our family, sometimes they rise up to that status, and sometimes they don't. That's true. We all experience that. We tell stories at work and at church and with our friends all the time. Look what my kid did here. Look what my kid did there. And our parents told stories about us, so we know that the whole thing continues on. Even though they are 100% our kids, and even though they fully are loved by us and accepted by us, even though positionally they're always a part of our family, they don't always act like it. There are times where they're just kind of running on the fumes of us declaring them as part of our family, but in their actions, they're not really measuring up. And yet you still love them. When they don't measure up, you don't say, you know what, you're out of the family. That's it. Not part of my family anymore. I mean, some, some families do do that, right? They shun and reject their children. And what do you and I do? We don't applaud that. We say, what, what kind of dad are you? What kind of mom are you? You don't do that to your kid. No, no, we prove ourselves good parents by continuing to declare them a part of the family even when they fall short. And that's all God is doing here. God simply has the same mindset. He's hardwired you just like him. And he says that what salvation is about is not you trying to fully and finally measure up to him in all of your good works. You're not going to do that. He's going to declare something that is not as if it is, namely, positionally righteous before him, fully a part of our family. The solution to our biggest problem, our sin problem, is a righteousness from God that gets imputed to us a status change that makes all the difference. Now, once we get this, the only question becomes, how does this become true for me on an individual level then, right? Because obviously, all of humanity is not experiencing this. Do we all understand that? Howard Stern is not experiencing this right now. Mick Jagger is not experiencing this right now. Madonna is not experiencing this right now. And so though God declares that this can be true for all of humanity, this new way that all of humanity can be free, obviously not everybody takes God up on his offer. So what's it going to take? This is point two of the new way. And that is that this new way is experienced by faith and faith alone. We're going to get to the object of our faith in point three. I'm trying to make this very clear. But what we first need to cement is that this new way is experienced only by faith. So look at how verse 17 goes on to finish this thesis. It says, for in it, the gospel salvation, the righteousness of God, his imputed righteousness to us, is revealed, now here it is, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous, those who get his imputed righteousness, shall live by faith. Man, I'm telling you, it could not be more clear here. From faith to faith, in other words, it all begins with faith, it all ends with faith. There is no other way to secure 
this status with God, this righteousness that he transfers to our account, it only comes through faith. And some might ask, if you're kind of playing a lawyer here, well, what other way could it come? I mean, it makes sense it would have come through faith because you can't earn it, but what other way could it come? I'm telling you, human beings have an amazing capacity here to try to bring works into it again. I'm telling you, I've seen this now for 30 years since I've been a Christian. The Bible is going to confirm this for us in two seconds. But the reality is, is that even though we just said works can't be a part of it, people want to say, well, it's faith and some works that I might bring to the table, right? It's faith and my good motives. It's faith and my cooperation with God. No, it's not. Look at Romans 3 and look at how verses 21 through 23 continue this discussion on the righteousness of God so we know the context is the same, but blow away this idea of trying to add works even here. It says in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God, again, that righteousness from chapter 1, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Folks, this can't be more clear. I mean, it's saying it's through faith. They even uses two synonymous words here, faith and belief. And then it says, apart from the law, which means all good works. And then the logic being, because we've all sinned and fall short, you're never going to have enough good works. It's telling us here that this righteousness isn't going to be your own. You might get more righteous once you become a Christian. That is the plan, by the way. But the reality is, is that that righteousness that you display after you become a Christian is still not earning your way to heaven. Do we all understand that? I said this early in the series, but I'm getting so frustrated. I mean, I ask veteran Christians who have been saved now for like 30 years, you know, why is God going to accept you into heaven? And I'm telling you, I still, from people who know, but, well, you know, I go to Bible study, Pastor, and, you know, I, I tithe 10% on the gross, and, you know, I got a really good heart, and I'm a good guy, and I've been faithful to my wife, and my kids have turned out semi-well. You know, I hear all these things, and I sit there and go, well, what's that have to do with anything? I mean, that's good stuff. And I think God has done that in your life, and I'm glad. But do we honestly think that that's what God is going to say when we die and go before him? That your kids turned out semi-well, get into heaven? That, that, that you tied 10 on the gross, get into heaven? You know, that you had a really good heart, get into heaven? If you believe that, you have totally misunderstood the gospel. The gospel says that, yes, God wants you to get better and be a better person, but only once you understand that it's all predicated on faith and faith alone that secures your status as a child of his before him. He wants children that trust him, not children that are trying to work their way to heaven. And what is faith? Let's define that real quickly. Faith is simply the disposition of your heart and your mind before God. Faith is simply defined as you internally resting all of who you are. It's a passive word, resting upon God and receiving what he has done for you. That's faith. Look how Doug Moo in his voluminous commentary on Romans says it as he quotes even the famous John Calvin. Look up here on the screen. He says, believing is not something we do in the sense of works, but is always a response in accepting of the gift God holds out to us in his grace. As Calvin puts it, faith is a kind of vessel with which we come empty and with the mouth of our soul open to seek God's grace. 
I love that definition. If faith is anything, it's an empty vessel. It's the vessel of your heart and mind that say, I get it, God. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. In fact, I'm going to jettison all these works aside for right now. And in this empty vessel, I'm going to receive what you've provided for me in the man Jesus Christ. What you provided for me in this gift of righteousness. And though we're going to move on to what Christ, how about Christ being the focus of our faith in just a second here. I just want to make the comment that this is very, very real stuff. You and I all have a measure of faith. We do. I've never met anybody, even the most self-sufficient, stubborn person this side of heaven has faith. We all rest our trust on something. It might be yourself, it might be your money, it might be this world, it might be your education, it might be one or two key people in your life, it might be your mentors, it might be an historical figure. There's lots of things we put our faith in in this world. But make no mistake, we all have faith. And all the Bible is saying, and this is why this is so real, is that until you understand that all those things that you choose to put your faith in today, though they might help you pragmatically, none of them will count toward your eternal destiny with God only when you transfer your faith, your reliance, to his provision of righteousness, which we will see comes through Christ, will you at all experience the freedom, the salvation, the new way that he offers us. And let me tell you how real this is. When I uh, became a Christian, I told you guys all this last year, that last year was the 30th anniversary for me of becoming a Christian. I accepted Christ March 11th, 1981. Hadn't grown up much in the church at all, hardly went to Sunday school, didn't know anything about the Bible. In fact, this is true, don't laugh at this, but the day I accepted Christ back in 1981, I assumed that Jesus wrote all of the Bible. And that just makes sense, by the way. I mean, if you weren't raised in the church and you knew that Christianity was about Jesus and you now accepted Jesus, then you assume he wrote the holy book, right? That was just my assumption. So I remember the first time after I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible. I'm like, who's Matthew? Who's Mark? Who's Luke? Who's, who are these? Paul, who are these guys? And I quickly realized that Jesus didn't write the whole book. I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I was what one of my friends would call Bible stupid. I had an education, mind you, but I just didn't know the Bible. Now, why is that important? Because the day that I became a Christian, though I didn't know anything about the Bible, though I didn't, couldn't have defined for you positional righteousness or anything like that, here's what I did understand. I understood that all my good works and good attempts up to that point weren't going to get me to heaven. See, for 17 years, I've been trying really hard. For 17 years, I'd lived a pretty good life. Upper middle class, I'd done service projects, I did pretty good in school, I had good friends, I was nice, at least to my friends. I was doing pretty well in life up to that point. I was a fairly obedient kid, even though I had some problems with my parents, they would have said the kid's doing okay. So by human American standards, I was doing all right, but I knew in my heart of hearts this was not cutting it with God. I knew that. And I knew that the day I accepted Christ that was only going to be through Jesus and what he provided for me that I was ever going to get right with God. I knew that. And so why do I have confidence that on March 11th, 1981 that I became a Christian? Because the gospel says that the day you receive Christ apart from your own good works is the day that you get it. Fascinating. Even though I didn't know anything about the Bible, even though I assumed Jesus wrote the whole book, 
even though I couldn't have defined one theological category, I understood the gospel. That's why D.A. Carson says about the gospel that the gospel is deep enough for an elephant to bathe in, you'll never plumb its depths, and yet it's shallow enough for a baby to play in. He's right. So the gospel, I've been plumbing the depths now for the last 30 years, and I never tire of it, but 31 years ago, being Bible stupid, I understood enough to come into a right relationship with God. And that's the point that the Bible makes. And this is our last point. With this, we're going to have a time of response. Jesus Christ is the focus of this new way. It's the only thing that we really need to understand at the end of the day, that it's Jesus Christ who is the one we need to have full faith in, who's the one who has solved our biggest problem. How does that work? Look one last time at Romans, this time at verses 22 and then 24 through 26. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Let's skip down to verse 24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, try to grab onto what it's saying here. People have said to me for years when they push back on the gospel, they said, you know, you don't, you don't need to get into Jesus, Jamie, because this Jesus thing just muddies the water. Why can't God just let it go? Think about it. That's why I hear people, why can't God just let it go? We've sinned against him. We've fallen short of his standard, but he's God for crying out loud. He can do anything he wants. Why can't he just let it go? Why do we got to have Old Testament and sacrifices and blood and animals and then the New Testament with Jesus and all of his teachings and his death and his resurrection and Easter Sunday and having to prove all that? And then you guys tell me we have to receive Jesus. Why do we have to do all that? Why can't God just let it go? And there's an answer to that, by the way. And again, going back to rational and livable, it's an answer that makes total sense. God can't let it go because justice does have to be served. And you would not want God to be any other way. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. God does not say to our sin or the sin of this world, water off a duck's back. And if he did, we'd all cry scandal, and we should. Think about that with me, people. If God said to sin, if God said to, to, to Attila the Hun or, or, or to Hitler, you know, I'll let it go. Water off a duck's back. Doesn't need to be any penalty paid. Just go do the most atrocious things you can think of, and I'll let it go. What would we say about God? We'd say, God, no, God, please, take that sin seriously. What we're saying to him is just don't take our sin seriously, but take that sin seriously. But you see, God says he takes all sin seriously. All sin needs to fall under his justice, every one of them. And what Romans is telling us here is that that's why Jesus is so important. Because when Jesus came, he was the one who took our sin upon him. He was the one who lived that righteous life that we couldn't live. And what the Bible says is that when you come home to Jesus, when you believe and trust in him, 
then the justice of God is met. That's what it means when it says there at the end that God did this to show his justness that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because in Jesus, it's not just this soft, flowery, wonderful, I love you man type of thing, though that's there, but it's also this rough and tumble, gritty, justifying and paying the penalty for our sin. The good and the bad, all of it is found in Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that we have any chance of having a relationship with God. And it's because of Jesus that we can experience the new way. But you've got to come home to him. You have to trust in him for eternal life. So here's the new way. Let's recap real quick before we go to our time of response. The new way provides the only solution to our biggest problem. The new way is experienced by faith and faith alone. And faith has an object. Jesus Christ is the focus and object of this new way. All throughout this series, I've been preparing for this Sunday. This is a Sunday where once we understand that we're created in God's image, that we're fallen, that God is angry, that there's judgment, and that our good works can't do it, that we're now ready to understand Jesus and the fact that it's only in Jesus that we have any chance to truly know God and find him. And yet for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we know what eternal life is, and we know that we've come home. Over in our venues right now and here in, in, in this place, we're going to give you a chance to respond. We're going to give you a chance to receive Christ as Lord and Savior today. And for those of you who might have strayed a little bit over the years and fallen into that works mindset that I was talking about, we're going to give you a chance to recommit your lives to him. We're going to do it through calling you to come forward to receive prayer. We're going to do it here in this room, and then we're going to do it also uh, with Rick over in the Cactus Campus and with Lucas over in the venue. And we're going to have an intimate time as a church in, in recommitting our lives and even leading people to a right understanding of God for the very first time. And so as we go into that time right now, I'm going to pray. As soon as I'm done praying, I'm going to talk to all of you here, but then Rick and Lucas will talk to their groups over there. So why don't we first pray and then we'll enter into our time of response. Father, you are good, you are awesome, you are holy, and you are loving and grace-filled. All that we desire, all that we know is right, wrapped up in the Godhead. And Father, I pray today that as hopefully we've added some real clarity to this idea of what the gospel is, the righteousness of God coming to us, that we understand that it can only come through faith apart from works, and it only can come through Jesus and no one else. And so God, predicated on that understanding, we now want to match our experience to that by having a time of response to you. Some of us receiving Christ for the very first time and others of us, Lord, recommitting our lives. So God, be pleased with this time. Receive each of us individually and the decisions we're about to make. And Lord, may we realize that these are the most amazing decisions we could ever make this side of heaven. So give us joy. As Lewis prayed so often, surprise us with joy. In this time we pray in Christ's name, amen.